Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Yael Cassander. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Claude Cookman. Claude Cookman has taught visual communication and the history of photography at Indiana University's School of Journalism since 1990. His teaching at IU has been recognized with six awards, including the System-Wide President's Distinguished Teaching Award. Cookman began his journalism career on his hometown newspaper, the Anderson Herald. Following service in the Army, including a tour in Vietnam, he pursued his career as a photography editor at the Associated Press in New York, the Louisville Times, where he shared in the 1976 Pulitzer Prize for Photography, and the Miami Herald. He earned a doctorate in the history of photography from Princeton, writing his dissertation on the legendary Henri Cartier-Bresson. Cookman's book, American Photojournalism, Motivations and Meanings, was published in 2009 by Northwestern University Press. He is currently writing a book about magazine photojournalists working in the French humanist tradition. Claude, thank you so much for being here today with us. I'm delighted and honored to be here. Thank you, Yael. Many of us today think about photography, and especially the kinds of photos that we see in magazines and the newspaper, as pure documentation. And since photography was first invented, there was a tendency to consider it as the pencil of nature in William Henry Fox Talbot's phrase. That is a faithful transcription of reality. And in your recent book, American Photojournalism, Motivations and Meetings, you call our attention to the distinction between this view and the postmodern dismissal of a photograph's neutrality. That is, that it's not a document of reality, but, for example, an artifact shaped by context and subjectivity, or worse, an objectification or a commodification of the subject that it purports to portray. And then you, in your book, place yourself somewhere between these two camps. So with that very long preamble, could you tell us more about your take Photography is not one thing. It is a vast, vast area in which people use this medium, and the medium itself changes constantly, but use this medium to create art, to make documents of the world, to record their personal lives for memory later on. I think Cartier-Bresson, whom you mentioned, uh, summed this up very, very well. This was before the liquid crystal displays that most people have on the backs of their cameras now, but he was talking about when you would look through the viewfinder of a camera, and he said, it's very appropriate that you have one eye open to see the world and one eye closed because that's when you look back into yourself. And I think that's a poetic way to uh, think about what goes on, but it's also a way to balance two really different uh, notions about what a photograph is and where it comes from. And that is to say, is it an objective record of what's in front of the camera, or is it an expression of someone's sensibility? Is it is it a subjective way of looking and thinking about the world and our relationship to that world? And, of course, it's, it can be both of those, or it can be either or. And um, that's what makes the study of the history of photography so very fascinating. You also quote Matthew Arnold in several different publications of yours uh, who said, 
to see life steadily and see it whole. I thought that was a nice summary of your take on uh, the role of photojournalism. I think Arnold's idea that we should not blink, we should look at both the good and the bad uh, extremes of the human condition is a really important one. It's certainly one that photojournalists have followed particularly at the extreme of of, uh, the problems in our society, in our world, and trying to expose those problems. So that's been a kind of a guiding idea for me for, uh, I guess, since I discovered it in college. Now, if we go to the opposite extreme, you have critics such as Susan Sontag, to get back to that idea of objectification or commodification, or Marxist criticisms of photojournalism, Uh, such efforts as Steichen's Family of Man exhibition, which you discuss in your book. Maybe you can tell us more about that extreme view that denies the record-keeping fidelity of photography or photojournalism. Sontag was one of the great critics of the 20th century, not just about photography, but literature. She was a great author of fiction as well. But in the early 1970s, she published a book called On Photography, And it really set the visual world on edge. It set the photography world on edge. Many of her insights are very, very useful for thinking about photography, but they also were extremely harsh. Just to give one example, it's possible or it's likely in some cases that taking a photograph is an aggressive act against the person being photographed, particularly if she doesn't want to be photographed. But uh, Sontag makes blanket statements like uh, all all photography, all instances of, of taking a photograph are like murders. So understandably, uh, there were a lot of people who made their living uh, in photography who, who didn't like this very much. I think she really comes from a Marxist point of view in the sense that she argues in our society, photography has become a substitution for experiencing reality itself. And clearly, this has gone a long way since the 70s in terms of the virtual world, but also that photography is part of uh, the way that the uh, dominant class anesthetizes the lower classes to their condition, to the contradictions of capitalism. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But the point now is that everyone has a camera in her hand or his hand, and it's important to have some ideas to think about what those cameras can do, and she certainly uh, gave us a lot. I should say that I think theoretical approaches to photography have moved far beyond Sontag now. Uh, Instead of what is typically called postmodernism, most people who approach the image now do so from a cultural, critical perspective, where they're really trying to understand its role uh, in our society and culture in a deeper way. I'm interested in the image and the photographer who took it and how that image and photograph functioned to communicate. I think these other scholars are interested in the image 
in a larger sense how it uh, operates in our culture. So the wonderful thing about the university is that there's room for all points of view. And, and we're very lucky here that there is an interdisciplinary group and we get together and we talk about the image. And we were instrumental in bringing a patent lecture to campus last year. So the image is a major part of the humanities and our study of the humanities on this campus. Yes, you may be rather unusual in the way that you embrace the photograph, both as a journalist and as an artist, and as an art historian and as a scholar of photojournalism. So um, that's an interesting blend that I hope that we can come back to in a little while. Let's return to the themes and traditions that have informed photojournalism over the course of its history, and specifically the humanist approach you have examined in your book. I think if you ask most people, what does a photojournalist do? Well, she takes pictures and they uh, show up on the front page of tomorrow's newspaper. Having worked in photojournalism for well over a dozen years, uh, newspapering for 18 years, that wasn't the way I saw it. That wasn't the way we saw it at all. Really, I think there are three big, big ideas that most photojournalists either intuitively or actually uh, consciously uh, work from. The first one is, I call it, uh, bearing witness to history. And there's an old truism that journalism is the first draft of history. Well, obviously, these pictures, as they're taken, their first usage is going to be in the next day's newspaper or now uh, on the website. But photographers have seen and understood how certain images become iconic they become part of our collective memory. And uh, these are images like uh, the slaying of Lee Harvey Oswald or images from Vietnam. And they understand that the pictures that they take may become part of what Americans 100 years from now, 200 years from now, look back on our era and see as a document of contemporary history. And so I think this is extremely powerful idea that, that many photographers uh, carry around with them, that they're not just trying to get the next day's publication, but they're trying to preserve a part of history in a visual, communicative way. The second big idea is what I like to call the social documentary tradition. It begins in this country with Jacob Rees and uh, with photographing the waves of immigrants that came into New York City and after they left Ellis Island would wind up in Manhattan's Lower East Side. And they lived in extremely wretched, wretched conditions. Reese started as a reporter, but with his writing, he didn't believe he was convincing people of how really bad the conditions were for these people. We're talking about tenements with no windows, uh, no air, foul water that caused people to have sicknesses, children growing up without parents living in the streets. So Reese taught himself photography so that he could take photographs of these conditions, and then he went around giving lectures with old uh, lantern slides, and he finally published a book uh, called How the Other Half Lived, and he used photography to expose these social problems with the hope that by bringing them to the public's attention, it would create enough public will and political will to cause the problems to be corrected. And in fact, in his case, he convinced a very, very important person of this, and that was Theodore Roosevelt, who at that time was head of the police commission 
in New York City, uh, later would go on, of course, to become president of the United States. But Roosevelt began to try to implement some of the reforms that Reese had envisioned. Well, the tradition goes on in this social documentary. The next round was a man named Lewis Hine, who documented child labor and whose work with the committee it took a long, long time. But eventually, Child labor laws were passed because of this. Its next big chapter was uh, photographs taken during the Depression by photographers like Dorothea Lange. Many photographers, and this is where your earlier question about uh, objectivity comes in, many photographers want to make the world better with their pictures. That's not an objective stance. That's a very subjective stance. But they have seen what's happened in these earlier cases, and they want to call to the public's attention problems that need to be addressed. And this is a tradition that, uh, as you mentioned, endures today. If you think about photographs from Katrina, for example, if you think about those from Haiti a year ago, or even photographs from Abu Ghraib, one of which is reproduced in your book. Absolutely. It really is probably the biggest idea that most photojournalists work from. Donna Ferrato put spousal abuse on the agenda through her pictures of battered women, pictures of the AIDS epidemic early on brought it so much to the forefront that the government could finally no longer turn away and had to begin funding research. The the latest war, wherever it might be, this really is what many, many photojournalists uh, live and breathe every day. Let's go back to a time in the 70s when your own career intersected with this tradition. This was the project for which you were awarded, along with the team of journalists in Louisville, the Pulitzer Prize. I was very, very lucky to be the picture editor at the Louisville Times. Uh, That was the afternoon paper, uh, the Courier-Journal, the morning paper is much better known. But the two newspapers shared a photography staff. I got there shortly after a federal judge ordered busing to integrate the inner city schools of Louisville, which were predominantly African-American, with the suburban schools of Jefferson County, which were predominantly white. There was a firestorm of opposition to this from many of the parents in the county who had moved to the county to escape what they thought was a bad school system in the city. We photographed the story step by step by step and all of its aspects. One of my proudest moments in the career was the very first day of school that fall, uh, 1975. I put on the front page two pictures. One picture was an amazing photograph taken in a classroom of a white boy and a black boy shaking hands. The other picture showed a woman in a demonstration, I won't call it a riot, but a demonstration who was being led away by police having been arrested in the streets. And what that combination, what those two pictures together, I thought showed was how much more mature the children were and how they were adapting and accepting a situation that the parents, uh, the so-called grown-ups, were not able to deal with. We collected uh, the entire take, the entire record of this, and submitted it, and uh, it was awarded uh, the Pulitzer Prize for Feature Photography in 1976. There are um, many interesting revelations in your book about 
similarly monumental photographs that were born of a humanist impulse or an an impulse to reform, such as your busing photos were. But then they have interesting sidebars and repercussions or codas. For example, that photo that has been, I think, more ordered almost than any other photo, the migrant mother of Dorothea Lange, taken during the Great Depression, which is almost an icon for the Depression, has sort of a a little-known story that goes along with it that you discuss in your book. For many, many years, no one knew who the woman was. And because she was anonymous, she could be a symbol for not just the poverty and the destitution that many migrants experienced, but I think most people saw a great strength in her expression and saw her sheltering her two young children and holding the infant in her arms. And she did become, and the picture became an icon, But she later became known, and she took a view of the picture that she'd been exploited, that she did not receive any uh, benefit at all from it, and she was quite bitter about it and bitter towards Dorothea Lange. Lange, by this time, had already passed on. But still later, uh, this woman named Florence Thompson became very ill and was hospitalized. And when the newspapers in the region, this would have been in Northern California, when they explained that this uh, ill woman was the migrant mother, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars poured in uh, to pay for her medical expenses. And so in a way, very belatedly, she did profit greatly from this image. There's another story that has a similar happy ending And it's one of the photographs that was taken by a late colleague of yours, Will Counts. You reproduce the photograph from Little Rock in the 1950s that he took, and then you reproduce a later photo as well. Can you tell that story? Yes. I think many of our listeners probably remember Will Counts. He was a great teacher and a great photographer and inspired many, many wonderful photojournalists. As a young man, he grew up in Arkansas, and he was working for the Arkansas Gazette when the NAACP decided they were going to integrate Little Rock High School. And they had chosen nine really, really bright young African-American students to do this. Counts was there on the first day when Governor Overall Faubus sent in the National Guard to turn these children away. And he followed a young woman named Elizabeth Eckford. And when she was refused entry, she had to walk back to a bus station, and she was surrounded by crowds of people who were filled with venom and hatred. And in one really exceptional photograph, Counts took a picture of this young black woman with a very stoic expression on her face in what had to be an extremely frightening situation. And immediately behind her, over her shoulder, a young white student with an expression of hatred on her face, shouting a racial epithet. Counts's pictures were picked up and distributed by the Associated Press. Uh, They made their way to the desk of President Eisenhower. They were probably not the only cause, but they were certainly instrumental in President Eisenhower's decision to send in the army and overturn Faubus and guarantee the safety of these black students and their ability to attend Little Rock High School. The story doesn't end there, however. When Counts retired, uh, he went back to 
Little Rock with his wife, Vivian, who helped him and did a 40-year look at how Little Rock High School had changed. And among other things, there were pictures now of the cheerleading squad with African-American young women on it. But with the help of Vivian, Counts brought the white woman and Elizabeth Eckford together, and they reconciled. And so in his book, there's the picture of the crowd scene in 1959, and then the picture of these two women reunited and reconciled. They came here, and they spoke in Wittenberg Auditorium on our campus, and it was a standing-room-only crowd, and in fact, there were people in the hallways outside trying to listen. It was one of the most emotional moments that this campus has experienced in a long time. The white woman apparently said she didn't want to be memorialized as the poster child of hatred or something along those lines. Exactly. Counts named his book after a line that the white woman, Hazel Bryant, said. He named his book More Than a Moment, and she said that uh, she was so grateful to Will and Vivian for this reconciliation because she did not want her life to be defined by that one moment, that one instant, that one moment of hatred, when she felt that she had gone far beyond that. But she herself was not able to find and reconcile with Elizabeth Eckford. But it, it is, a, I think, a healing story. It's a story of reconciliation. We're speaking about moments, and of course that serves as a segue for me to a, a subject that's dear to your heart, Henri Cartier-Bresson, and uh, his theory and uh, his title at one time was The Decisive Moment. Now, recently I was interviewing uh, some BFA photography students here at IU who are working uh, with some advanced technology and I guess they would call it constructed reality, what they do with their contemporary photographic setups. And what she told me was these days it's not so much about finding the decisive moment as it is about creating it. So, of course, she was referencing Cartier-Bresson. I was hoping that you could recap his idea for us, tell us how it informed photojournalism, and then whether or not it's still relevant today. One of the big, big ideas in the book, because I think it's a big factor in photography, is how much technology changes not just the cameras, but the kinds of photographs that are possible with each new generation of camera. So up until the mid to late 1920s, most cameras were big and bulky. A lot of them were view cameras that were you had to have them on a tripod. Or in journalism, there was, in this country, the speed graphic. In uh, Europe, uh, comparable, the uh, Gaumont camera. And they only took one piece of film at a time. Uh, along comes a German invention called the Leica camera. And it's the first 35-millimeter camera. And you can hold it up to your eye, which means you can follow action. You can take 36 frames without having to reload the film. And this absolutely revolutionizes photography. It makes magazine photojournalism possible because now you can have a sequence of pictures. You can take many pictures of an event as it's unfolding. It also makes possible capturing spontaneity. It was possible to get a spontaneous picture with the old cameras, but most photographers, most press photographers did not do that. They posed 
their subjects, they found a setting, they included props and so forth, and they set up a scenario that would symbolize the situation. So they were very much in a controlling mode. The main time when they shot spontaneously would be like a sports event. Cartier-Bresson showed the potential of this new 35-millimeter camera for capturing spontaneous action, for freezing it in mid-action. And that's become known as the the decisive moment. And uh, his iconic photograph, the signature photograph that symbolizes this, shows a man behind a railroad station in Paris uh, who's jumping into a huge puddle of water. It fills the entire space. But Cartier-Bresson clicks the shutter just a second before his heel touches down in the water. And there's just a tiny gap, an inch or less. And that has become a symbol of the frozen instant. Because had he waited a a split second later, the picture wouldn't have worked. There would be all of this rings in the water. I, I should go on and say, though, that this is the title for the American edition, which was put out by Simon & Schuster, The Decisive Moment. And it comes from a quote by a Cardinal de Retz who said, everything has its decisive moment. In fact, the French edition of the book was called Image à la Sauvette. And à la Sauvette is a term, it can be loosely translated, a quick getaway. It was used a lot in terms of street vendors who set up a stall, and then when the police would come, they'd grab everything and run away. So that was all of that. And that was the way Cartier-Bresson saw his work, that he wanted to be absolutely anonymous. He wanted to go into the streets of Paris, but also the entire world, and take a picture and be gone before you realized you had even been photographed. Not for the sake of uh, being surreptitious, but for the sake of getting something that was natural, that was candid, that was unposed, that really revealed a human moment that would not be possible with these old press cameras where nobody could uh, ignore the fact that he or she was uh, in front of a camera and about to be uh, photographed. Well, so then let's fast forward to now when... Digital photography is ubiquitous, and um, we don't need to be precious about each frame whatsoever, and we can get a thousand decisive moments (laughs) over the course of of a few days. Is the term relevant anymore? And if so, what can we take from it? I mentioned a minute ago, and again, it's a big idea in the book, that technology changes the possibilities for making images. And the digital camera certainly has done that. I think now the cutting-edge medium is the audio slideshow. Many, many uh, journalistic websites and a lot of other websites are very interested in producing a slideshow where it's not just a single image, but maybe as many as 40 or 60 or a couple of hundred images that pass by quickly But our brains synthesize the images and put them together and make a much bigger understanding of the event 
the situation, the theme, the idea that the photographer is trying to cover. So that's what's happening on one level. The students that you mentioned earlier, the art students, they're doing something quite different. In fact, in a way, they've gone back to the days of the speed graphic camera where they're very much constructing images to take. But they're constructing them not to represent reality, but to express a conceptual idea that they have in their minds. And so, again, I, I, I joke, but it's not a joke. I have the best job in the world because I get to engage a wide, wide range of the way people use an extremely important, all-pervasive medium in our society. I hope that we can talk about your university experience in the second half of our interview. Let's take a break now and talk about the music that you've selected for today's program. You have brought along a couple of selections that are meaningful to you. Will you tell us about the first one? Sure. The first one really grows out of my childhood. My grandfather was from Kentucky. He's the reason I'm named Claude. It's a very rare name in our country, except in Kentucky, which has a lot of liaisons with France. But uh, he was a fiddle player, and as a child, every Saturday night, we would listen to country music on the radio. And so when I was in college, I was very ready and primed for the folk music wave that that swept our country in the 60s. And I became a fan of uh, Joan Baez and many of her protest songs, her anti-war songs. But I got a record, one of her early albums, that had an amazing, amazing aria on it that was unlike anything I had ever heard. It's a number by Ator Vila Lobos. It's from his uh, Bach suite, and it's an aria called the Cantalina. I was struck by the pure crystal quality of Baez's voice. This is a number that has stayed with me much, much longer now than the folk songs that I enjoyed as well. A selection by Joan Baez, chosen for us today by our guest on Profiles, Claude Cookman. I'm Yael Cassander. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You had mentioned listening to Joan Baez in the 60s, Claude, and enjoying her protest songs and her anti-war songs. Your life includes service in the Army. You did a tour of Vietnam, and you've written about the photographs of the My Lai Massacre, which occurred in 1968 when you were there. 
your reflection on those photographs, especially given your own personal experience? I think everyone uh, who was in Vietnam uh, reacted to it differently. Uh, My reaction was to try to put it out of my head and to repress it. I did not want my life to be defined by the year I spent in a war zone. And so I really didn't think much about the war. I came back. I was aware of the anti-war sentiment. In fact, I'd only been back a few years when I went to graduate school at Columbia, where in 1970-71, the war was still going on and the protest movement was extremely strong. But I did not talk or think much about my war experience until the mid to late 90s when I wrote an article about a French photojournalist who photographed in Hanoi, a man named Marc Rebou. And in doing that, I suddenly there was this great flood of curiosity and interest about the war. And I read everything I could get my hands on. And I saw it from a much uh, different perspective. I, I think the the first thing to say about being a soldier in a war zone is your perspective is so limited. And you may have a personal uh, reaction, but you don't really understand what's going on. And so I, I was able to see it from a global perspective. I was invited a few years ago to write about a photograph of my choice for the Journal of American History. And I chose a picture that I thought was extremely intense Uh, It was taken by an Army photographer, Sergeant Ron Haberly, during the My Lai Massacre. And the most common picture published from the My Lai Massacre shows the dead bodies lying along a road. But this picture shows seven women and girls and children a few seconds before they are slain. And the expressions on their faces are absolutely horrific. I think... As a country, we need to acknowledge what's done in our name, what's done by our armed forces. And that was the theme or that was the thrust of this article that I tried to write. It doesn't mean that we hate America at all. It doesn't mean that we are anti-America. It doesn't mean that we uh, reject the army. But we need to take a very hard look at what is done. And this goes back to where you began with the Matthew Arnold quote that we need to see life whole. We need to see it completely. We need to see the things that we would rather not look at. You spent a couple of decades working as a photojournalist, and in 1990, you came to Indiana University, where you've been since and have been recognized with a number of awards for your teaching. What is it about teaching that is rewarding for you? I would like to not talk about teaching, but talk about teaching and learning. Teaching puts the emphasis on the instructor, on me. Learning puts the emphasis on the students and what they can accomplish. In fact, it is the students and it is what they accomplish that really, really ignites me as an instructor. I think a lot of instructors worry about how they're going to motivate their students. I don't think we have to motivate people at all to learn. The core of my understanding of learning is that we are all born as natural learners. And I got this from our sons when they were infants. You can't teach a a child uh, anything because she or he is so set on teaching themselves. And so they learn to sit up and they learn to crawl and they learn to walk. And uh, we think we're teaching them to speak, but they learn to speak. And so the biggest 
thing that I try to do as a teacher is to connect this natural desire, this human quality of being a learner to the subject matter that I'm charged with presenting. Teaching is extremely satisfying. I should say, to back up just a little bit, when I was at the newspaper in Louisville, I was invited to teach a a course in picture editing at Western Kentucky University, which is in Bowling Green, which was 125 miles from Louisville. So uh, once a week, I made a 250-mile round trip to teach this three-hour course. By the second week, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher, that the classroom was so much more satisfying than the newsroom. And the newsroom was always very, very good to me. I enjoyed it. I got to be parts of some really big stories. And uh, I thrived on the the adrenaline that would pump through when those big stories were happening. But the classroom was extremely satisfying. And so I continued to teach part-time. And eventually, after a couple more job changes, got to graduate school and came here. And I should say, uh, this is the longest I've been anywhere. Uh, Before here, my record was uh, about uh, six years, and I'm now in my 22nd year and uh, still loving it every moment. Congratulations. It strikes me that both being a photojournalist and being a professor are about effecting change. And maybe there's a difference in the way that you're able to see the change, for example, the the project for which you won the Pulitzer Prize in Louisville, was a project that opened many eyes to the situation of integration. And one could argue that changed a lot of public sentiment about the issue. Here, you're changing lives and opinions also as a professor, perhaps rewarding in a different way. My minor in college was philosophy, and I've always been cursed by having to think through and and have ideas about everything. So I want to look at the really big, big, broad look at what education is. There was a, a scholar named Kieran Egan who wrote a book called The Mind's Eye. And in this book, he says, if you boil it down, there are really only three big purposes for education. One is to socialize young people into their society and culture. That that happens a lot in the school of journalism because we are trying to uh, help them imbibe the values of, of the profession of journalism. Another is to transmit the accumulated knowledge of our civilization. The third is to promote the development of the individual. And that's where I have put my emphasis and, and uh, my interest, to try to help each of my students maximize her potential on an intellectual level, on a social level, on an ethical level, on a practical skills level. So what really excites me is to see a student discover that she can do something that she was afraid she could never accomplish. And this happens all the time. It happens a lot in a course called J210 Visual Communications. When you're six years old, you know you're an artist. But something comes along and takes that out of us. Something in our educational system or some kind of doubts happen. And unless a young person takes an elective in art, art education stops around the third grade. And no matter how desirable it might seem to be an artist, they've all come to believe that they they are not. 
They get into visual communications, and we expect them to be creative. We expect them to make projects that, yes, they're communication projects, but they also have an awful lot to do with art, with the visual form. These are very demanding projects, but we give them enough support. And when they discover that they can make an audio slideshow that they've never done before, they can make a video piece with a soundtrack that they've never done before, they have a a sense of satisfaction at what they've accomplished. So looking at their projects, and I see them as really, really very good for somebody doing something for the first time. That's what uh, motivates me. That's what gets me excited. I'm very, very lucky. But in another sense, that was the same role that I had with the photographers. I was not the one taking the picture. I was the one who was trying to celebrate their work and get it published correctly uh, in the newspapers. You bring up the issue of art being relegated to the margins of our education. You attempt to introduce your students to a certain level of visual literacy at the college level. Is that already too late? Would you argue that an ability to understand the way images work in a critical way needs to be reintroduced at a younger level? Absolutely. And I think there's some movement in that direction. But it's never too late to start. At the most fundamental level, and the first thing we do in this course, and I think the the most basic objective of this course, is to just get people to see and to see deeply because we all uh, tune out a lot of sensation. It would be impossible to bring every sensation into our consciousness. And this works for our taste, our smell, our hearing, but it works especially for our sense of vision because if we are going someplace, we don't stop and pay attention to what's between us and our objective. So I try at the first level to get my students to engage in what we call concentrated purposeful seeing. And that is to stop and really look at something and look at it a long, long time. And we do this with photographs. Most people looking at a photograph will give it three seconds, maybe five seconds. I ask my students to write a five-page essay about a single picture. And so over and over and over again, they start off by saying, I didn't think there was that much here. And then this is what I saw, and this is what I discovered, and on and on and on. So uh, that's a part of it. Uh, that's, that's the first step. Now, you, of course, have a great deal of art historical education, and you have, in turn, become involved with the various art institutions here on campus. Tell us maybe about your involvement with the Art Museum and the Kinsey Institute's Visual Arts Collection. Indiana University is so rich, and it's rich in uh, many ways. It's rich in all of the minds that walk across this campus every day. It's rich in its labs and its classrooms and its technology, but it's rich in its art. Certainly the performing arts, the musical arts, but uh, its collections. And so I've been very, very lucky to be part of two of those collections. I serve on the policy committee of the Art Museum, wonderfully uh, directed by Heidi Gelt. And once a semester we meet, and it's rather like being back in graduate school in an art seminar because the various curators will present works of art that are being considered for acquisition to the museum. 
and those of us on the policy uh, committee vote and decide whether they should be admitted. So it's a joy, and it's one of the service uh, things that I look forward to uh, every semester. In the uh, December meeting, uh, we got an amazing uh, gift that really came to IU through the scholarship of Heidi Gelp, and that is numerous, numerous drawings by the Italian Renaissance master Tiepolo. So that was a, a visual feast. Through my history of photography course, I became involved in the Kinsey Institute. I like my students to see real prints, original prints, uh, as opposed to reproductions, certainly as opposed to slides that are shown on a screen. And so uh, I bring them to the art museum uh, to see the collection that uh, Nan Brewer uh, presides over. But we also go regularly to the Kinsey Institute where the curator for works of art, Catherine Johnson Rohr, is a wonderful host and shows these magnificent photographs. Because of that, I was invited a few years back to become a member of the board of trustees of the Kinsey Institute. Indiana University is extremely fortunate to have such a research institute on this campus. The work that Julia Hyman and Stephanie Sanders, Eric Janssen are producing, the research is amazing. But Alfred Kinsey saw human sexuality as broader than simply scientific research. He believed that the way artists the way writers and authors expressed their human sexuality was extremely important as well. And so from the very beginning, Kinsey began to collect works of art and uh, began to build a library. And the treasures that exist in the Kinsey Institute collections are uh, wonderful. And they really are my personal goal for being on this board to try to help to grow the collection, particularly in the areas of art photography. And we should elaborate that. The Kinsey Collection, for those who haven't been to see it, goes far beyond photographs of pornography and erotica to photographs that fall into the the larger area that the Kinsey specializes in, the area of reproduction, for example. And so by way of closing, I'd like to mention a beautiful project that you were involved with that I think dovetails with the Kinsey's mission, but also dovetails with your notion that humanism informs photojournalism. And that is this book, An American Family, Three Decades with the McGarveys, which was a remarkable project for which you wrote the text. These are photographs by Pam Spaulding charting a family over the course of three decades. Maybe you can tell us about it and why you chose to be involved with the project. I was very, very lucky to be invited to write the text for this project. But I should back up and talk about how this fits into the photojournalism that we were talking about earlier. As I said, so many photographers were trying to expose social problems and finding people at the disadvantaged end of the social scale. And uh, my colleague Pam Spaulding thought, that's okay, but there's a part of the story that's not being told, and that is uh, the middle or the upper middle class and what their lives are like. And so in the idea of trying to document, again, the full breadth uh, to see life whole, Pam Spaulding began a project that she thought would only last a year, and that was to look at 
not the birth because so many photographers had done – this was in the early 70s when the notion of natural birth or birth without anesthesia uh, was a very popular idea. And so there were lots of photojournalists, including one who won a Pulitzer Prize for it, who recorded this. Pam thought, my life changed dramatically when our first daughter came home, and that's the story I want to tell. And so she found a couple. The wife was a school teacher. The husband was a lawyer, John and Judy McGarvey, who agreed to let her spend a year documenting how their lives had changed by the birth of their first son, David. Well, the year didn't stop. <laughs> uh, it went on for 32 years. And so uh, what Pam has produced is a longitudinal look at an upper-middle-class family that has not been done before and I doubt will ever be repeated again. But she sees it, and I think appropriately so, as a piece of anthropology, as something for scholars 100 or 200 years from now will look back. Yes, they'll see the people, they'll see the inner relationships, but maybe what they'll find most interesting is that pot hanging on the wall in the kitchen. She also, and I think this comes out in the first part of the book, sees that as a study of time. An old idea from uh, the pedagogy of art history is when you see two pictures side by side, they say something that neither of them could say alone. There are pictures that show the grandfather with his favorite grandson, Morgan, the middle, the middle child. When Morgan is six or seven years old, playing Little League, and the grandfather has his arm around Morgan. And then there's a picture made over 20 years later when Morgan, who's now a grown man, is helping his aged grandfather climb the staircase. So this is the kind of long-term documentary project that allows you to see those kinds of things and say those kinds of things with your photographs. Thank you, Claude. Why don't we conclude our conversation today with your other musical selection? Tell us what you've chosen and why you've chosen it. One of my favorite pieces of music is the New World Symphony by Antonin Dvorak, and I particularly like the second movement called the Largo. I love it because of the quiet lyrical quality. Uh, I love it because of uh, listening to the oboes and the flutes and the violins uh, talk back and forth to each other. It's just a beautiful piece. So since the second movement is quite long, we'll just hear an excerpt of the Largo from Dvorak's New World Symphony. We've been speaking today with Claude Cookman. Claude, thank you so much for being with us today. 
I've enjoyed our conversation tremendously. Thank you, Yael. This is Yael Cassander for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.